so we are seeing these uh, symbols of judgment here. And uh, we just looked at 14, 16 of chapter 14, where he's reaping the grain harvest, which is a judgment symbol. But would somebody read chapter 14, verses 17 to 20? And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the winepress, the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress after the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Okay, so you see this angel that also has a sharp sickle. There's the angel with power over the fire. You've got angels of all kinds of things in this book. And this is the fire angel. He comes out from the altar. Now, we would connect the altar with what? Yeah, but in the book of Revelation with... Yeah, the prayers of the Christians. The souls under the altar or whatever, uh, crying out to God to punish their enemies. So, this is a response to the prayers of the saints. And he's telling the one with the sickle to do what? Harvest the grapes. And he does. And throws them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. You you ever seen that I Love Lucy uh, segment where she's uh, treading out the grapes? You know, if you haven't, then you're handicapped on this one. But uh, they throw the grapes into these big wine vats. And then they'd stomp on the grapes separating out the juice, and then they'd siphon the juice off. Well, what does grape juice look a lot like? Blood. So that becomes a perfect figure to describe God's judgment. Kind of appropriate, too, if you go back to 14.8. Babylon had made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion for immorality. Now here's the wine of the wrath of God, and how much blood comes out from the wine press. A ton, up to the horse's bridles for 200 miles. That's a slaughter of monumental proportions. It's just trying to get us a, give us a feel for the massiveness of this judgment God is bringing upon the persecutors. David? Um, how many feet would be up to a horse's bridle, do you think? I don't know. How far to about four feet? Well, they measure a head. Five yeah, feet? There's still a standard measurement. A head is already... They still use that measurement. So, do you know how? I'm. I'm just asking. Does anybody know that? That probably be. Okay, I don't know. But I don't know how many cubic feet there is in blood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm gonna do that right now. You can keep going. Ah, you you, you see what you can calculate for us, and uh, you know that would handle the uh, transfusions we need for the next uh, few hundred years. So. Yeah, it's just a huge symbol of the horrendous wrath of God that's being really prefigured here. This is just kind of showing us what's about to happen with the judgment God's bringing upon 
those who were slaughtering the Christians. They're going to get a slaughter themselves. Comments or questions on chapter 14? Sure. Uh, it would seem to me maybe verse 14 is talking about Christ. Would you, would you, do you interpret this as being, it's Christ's judgment because he swings the sickle on the earth, but it's executed through his messengers? I think that's the most likely interpretation. I wouldn't stake my life on the Son of Man here being Christ, but that's my guess. Jason. Do you think there's any significance behind the wine press being outside the city? Well, I think there is. Um, you know, perhaps the idea of them being rejected by God. They're outside his city. Uh, an appropriate place of, of judgment, punishment. Did, did you talk yet about why there's going to be two harvests? I didn't. There's a debate about that. I think it's just saying the same thing with two different figures. Not everybody agrees with me on that, but that's what I think. I'm always better at presenting what I think than the other <laughs> But it's only once to ever present a different view, you're always welcome to. Other thoughts? The, the reaping similar to the... Uh Yes, yes. And, and to just the idea of the separation of the wheat from the chaff that you have sometimes. It's just the idea of the, the separation of the righteous and the wicked, and therefore the punishment of the wicked. David? Um, the blood would be 500, I mean 5,280,000 cubic feet of blood. That's, that's, that sounds like an apple supply. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, information there. All right, anything else on chapter 14? I have a question. Sure. I can look it up. Though. The angel that has authority over the fire in, cha- in verse 18? Yes. 14, um, is he from before? I don't think so. Okay. No, I don't think so. We've had angels have power over the waters. It's like we had another one like that that had a specialization. But I think this is the first one. This, uh, is there an angel in Ezekiel that has that power over fire? Or, now he just There's the angel, the cherubim, that took the fire yeah. from uh, the coals and spread them out on Jerusalem, but I'm not sure it says he has power over fire specifically. Let's see there. Yeah, he scorches them out of the fire because of the sun. So, yeah, I don't know. There's just a ton of angels. I mean, you know... Uh, there's just so much more going on that we don't really realize. I mean, I think there's probably just a lot more um, servants God has at his disposal and more things that he can do through various messengers than what we often think about. We're so scientific in our culture. You know, we, we, we want to, if we can't put it in a test tube, we don't believe it. And we just need to get rid of that concept. I mean... There, is, there are many things we can't see and we can't measure that are happening that God has control of. Now, we don't always know what they are. We don't, necessarily, we, can't, we don't have a prophet here saying, well, God's doing this, this, and this. But I think these passages and others all throughout the Bible help us see God is very active and has plenty of instruments in his hand. Other comments? Alright, so we finally actually get into 
what I'm seeing as the specifics of the seventh trumpet. Kind of getting down to the specifics of this ultimate victory of God. And chapter 15 is the introduction to that. So would somebody like to read that chapter? And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will come and worship before thee. For thy righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels, who had the seven plagues, came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Okay, so what do we see being introduced here, or who? we got these seven angels. We've had seven angels before. What do these seven angels have? Seven plagues, which are the last. This is the ultimate outpouring of the wrath of God in in connection with the story in the book. These are co- going to be called the seven golden bowls of the wrath of God. That uh, So I think we're do- subdividing the seventh trumpet up now into these seven plagues, these seven last bowls of God's wrath. But before we actually see that, we take a look at another picture. We're looking up in heaven at the sea of glass, and who do we see? The victorious ones. Where are they? Yeah, they're they're in the presence of God there, uh, before the throne, victorious. I'm assuming these are the ones who've died, and they are they've won the victory because they've been brought up to God uh, in this. And it's interesting what they sing. What do they sing about? Moses and the Lamb. Yes, it's the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, but what's its content? It's about God. The focus is on God's power and sovereignty and what God has done, not upon what they have done. We might be thinking, well, you'd sing about the great things you'd done and your great strength and perseverance and wisdom and whatever. They don't sing about themselves. They sing about God. You know, this is all about what the Lord has accomplished and they they honor and glorify Him. That's what we do in heaven. That's what we ought to be doing here too. And the focus here ought to be 
on the greatness of God and the things that God has done. Comments or questions through verse 4? I think it's interesting when you first see the throne scene, there's a, a sea of glass kind of seems to be separating John from it. And now you've got saints in the sea of glass. Yes, you do. And at the end of the book, that sea's gone. There isn't any separation at all anymore. Good point. Very good. Yes. I'm sorry, what translations? Because you all keep saying in, and the translations we have say they're standing beside. Uh, it says on. Yeah. I've, What's the American standard? Well, yours is obviously wrong. As long as I know. Short answer. Yeah, Newark has on. I don't know about the end. <laughs> Other comments? What's a sea of glass? Well, it's a sea that's uh, made up of glass instead of water. Can you imagine what that'd be like? Wouldn't that be cool? Would it be solid or would it be moving? I'm assuming solid. But it's mingled with fire, so I was thinking it'd be like molten glass. I I thought there was a river of fire, I mean a sea of fire and a sea of glass. I've always pictured it as glass being like a mirror. Whatever it is, it appears, you know, when you look at glass, it's shiny. I imagine... I thought of it as like waves, solid glass. You think about the glass they had back then. They didn't have glass like we have now, right? It's, <laughs> it's wavy, if anything, and glass was highly priced because you could make a mirror out of it. Most of the mirrors were polished metal. So it's something that would have been very valuable, something that's, you know, it's different than what we think of when we think of glass. There you have it. But that's good. just my opinion. That's well, you know a lot opinion. more about that than I do, so... <laughs> I know, that's what I did. Your opinion counts on that subject around here. Other comments? So, you see then, opening the uh, temple in, in heaven, and here's these seven angels that have these seven plagues. Now, what I want you to notice especially is verse 7. This is very interesting to me. One of the four living creatures gives to these seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Go back to chapter 5 and verse 8. In 5.8, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, I'm assuming that these golden bowls that were full of the prayers are now being responded to by being full of the wrath of God. And and to me, that's another sign that this judgment is in response to the prayers of the Christians, which is really exciting, really amazing when you stop and think about it. And the temple ends up being filled with the smoke from the glory of God, which reminds me of the smoke of the incense in the prayers of chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. So it seems to me like we're making reference directly back to these chapters that talk about the prayers of the Christians, and the prayers of the Christians directly lead to the judgment that's being poured out upon the earth. So to me, when I see things like that, it makes me see that this book is showing me God answering the saints' prayers. You know, he's, he's using the very same golden bowls to respond to their prayers by filling them with wrath and throwing them on the earth. Comments and questions on chapter 15?
this with the temple being filled with smoke from the glory of God, similar to when they built the tabernacle in the presence of the Lord, filled it so that even Moses couldn't enter it. So showing the presence of God. And maybe showing that until God gets the judgment finished, nobody's going to be able to come in or interfere in any way. That's a good good comparison. Jason? In some sense here in verse 6, it seems like these angels are just somewhat like Jesus was in chapter 1 with the long white linens and the golden sash on their chest. Does that have any significance? Probably puts them in connection with the Lord. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? What is the song of Moses do you think would be most appropriate about being mentioned again here? I mean, there's pretty obvious connections just talking about God's victory and things like that, but um, any other specific points that you would have about that? Well, my first question is I'm not sure which song of Moses it is. I'm not sure whether this is Exodus 15 or Deuteronomy 32. It's a really debated question. And that's the first question, so I don't really have any comments on that at the okay. moment. But you might you might debate out that question sometime. Uh, uh, yes. You know, I've always wondered. It says they sang the song of Moses and the Lamb, saying, and so you're given here right. what the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb is. And then my question really is, uh, when you look at this, this is talking about God and. It's not really talking about Moses or the Lamb, but it's talking about God, but God is the one that <laughs> behind everything, you know. Yeah, so. well, of course, Moses sang about God, right, too. Right, right. So, I, I so. mean, think in that sense, it's not the song about Moses, but right. the song like Moses sang. Right. They reveal, they at least say about what God has just done and what he's about to do as righteous. Yes. And definitely, God is the one being glorified. Don't you see that in all of this? This is a book about the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, uh, 3 and 4 do have a lot of verbal similarity with, uh, with this song. Yes, there is a lot of comparison. So that may be the song of Moses that he's talking about. Well, let's look at these uh, seven bowls of wrath. Uh, and, wow, there's a lot that we'll be able to uh, think about with these. Um, one thing you might think about as you're going through this is just to think of some comparisons and contrasts with the trumpets. So, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 to 12. Fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. 
They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Alright. Um, you know, every one of these uh, sevens, there's an appropriate thing to do with it. So if it's the seals, the lamb breaks the seal. If it's the trumpet, the trumpet is sounded. If it's the bowl, the bowl is poured out. So here, the first angel pours his bowl out where? On the earth, and what happens? People are... Sores. You know, that's kind of an intriguing thing. The ones who have the mark of the beast now have the marks of the sores of God's wrath. Uh, that's pretty... That, but that was really uh, a terrible plague on those people. The second bowls poured out where? On the sea. And what happens to the sea? Yeah, it becomes blood, everything dies in the sea. Third angel's poured out where? On the rivers, and what happens to them? And here's where you got the angel of the waters. Heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. You know, here's the punishment that fits the crime. They shed the blood, they need to drink blood. But listen to the altar, verse 7. The altar says, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Now, what were the souls underneath the altar asking for in the fifth seal? Justice for God to judge and avenge their blood. This is the exact answer to that. God is judging and avenging their blood constantly in this, as the judgment, as the wrath is being executed, you see that these appeals from the Christians, both living and dead, from earlier in the book, are being responded to. That's what this book is all about. We see God answering their prayers as he brings wrath down on those who are, who are persecuting. You know, we might think, you know, in our um, very, um, I don't know, too uh, tolerant uh, concepts that you really shouldn't punish. You know, that God judging is really not a good thing. That's not true. It is right to rejoice that God brings justice, judgment, and even vengeance on those who deserve it. We should, we should want that to happen. If you were at war, do you care which side wins? Yeah. yeah, very much so. We don't relate to war very well. We relate to sports, though. Do you want your team to win? You know? Do you, do you feel kind of bad for the other side when, when they didn't win? No. No, you don't. Well, we, we ought to be passionate for God's side. We love God. His cause is absolutely right. And we want Him to win. 
And when he's winning, that means the other side is losing. We rejoice. And we glorify God with that. And then you see the fourth bowl. Where is it poured out? And what happens? Yeah, ouch. That's painful. Go back to 7.16 for just a second. And in the picture of the, the multitude in heaven there, there, there's not any sun beating down on them, nor any heat. Uh, but for these who are wicked, the sun is over, you know, functioning, and it's scorching them with fire. But what's their response to being uh, burned? Blaspheme God and refuse to repent. Isn't that ridiculous? So the fifth angel pours out his bowl where? On the throne of the beast and his kingdom's darkened. And how do they respond? Blaspheme God and don't repent because of their pains and their sores. So I take it they still had the sores going on from the first bowl. And then the sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, drying it up, opening the way for God's army to come. Now, I'll open this up for some comments in a minute, but I want to do something with you before I do. And that is, let's just make a few observations about the parallels and contrasts between these first six bowls and the first six trumpets. You might, if you need refreshing your memory, uh, go back to chapters 8 and 9. This is where, as I said when I first started, knowing the book well helps a lot. The more you just know these details, the more some of this comes alive. Look at how the realms affected by the trumpets and the bowls were similar. The first trumpet, we're now in 8-7, affects what, basically? The earth. The first bowl, 16-2, is poured out where? On the earth. The second trumpet, chapter seven, chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, uh, affects what? And the second bowl, 16-3? The sea. The third trumpet, chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, affects what? The rivers and springs of water. And what about the third bowl, starting in 16.4? The rivers and springs of water. Uh, the fourth trumpet, 8.12, affects what? Sun, moon, and stars. And the fourth bowl, uh, verses 8 and 9? The sun. Then the fifth trumpet is chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. And what was that all about? The, the abyss and the locust that came out of it. And the fifth bowl in 10 and 11 is poured out where? The throne of the beast. The abyss would be also the place of the beast. And then the uh, sixth trumpet in chapter 9, verses 13 to 19, involves a, a what? Yeah, and there, the, then the horsemen, the cavalry that's coming, the army, huge army. And what do you see in, in 1612? Well, the Euphrates dried up for the army from the east. By the way, the Euphrates even is the same. You have that in, in 9.14. So you have very parallel realms right down through between the, the trumpets and the bowls. 
But there are some significant contrasts between the, the trumpets and the bowls. What do you see? Yes, the trumpets often affected what percentage? A third, what fraction I guess I should say, uh, whereas it's everything. You know, all the sea, for example, becomes blood and everything dies, not just a third. So, it's much, this is just total, not just the warning of a third. That's the most obvious difference. Do you see any other differences between the trumpets and the bowls? Yes, the effect on man is more direct in the bowls. Like, it's not just a third of the vegetation burned up in the first one, it's the sores directly on man. And I think in general you see a stronger effect on men in general in the bowls. Not necessarily every one of them, but you do see that somewhat. There's, I think, another probable difference between the trumpets and the bowls. Particularly look at 16.9. No, 16.11. Not just that. Not just that. Do you see it in 16.11? They blamed God? Not just that. Not them, but the, the, the punishment itself. The source, what's it telling you? It's, oh, it's not, it's about the specific people. The yes. People that worship the beast. It's not what I'm thinking, though, still. That, and let me tell you what I'm thinking. <laughs> let me just read verse 11 for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same version. <laughs> You'll see this when I say it. In the trumpets, my assumption is they are successive. In the bowls, they seem to be cumulative that one's kind of poured out over the top of the other one. And so we're still suffering all the effects of the previous ones when the next one is poured out. With the trumpets, it seems to me like you, you have it and then it stops, and then you have the next one and it stops, sort of like the plagues in Egypt. But this just builds up more and more and more. Uh, that's, that's my take by the fact that the sores still exist even during the fifth bowl. Um, I'll tell you another difference, though we've not gotten there yet. Remember in the trumpets, there was kind of an interlude talking about what's going to happen to the people of God between 6 and 7. No interlude here. It just boom, 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 right on down to the 7th one. So, I mean, this is just devastation. This is just total destruction. This is God wiping out those who martyred the Christians. Comments and questions. Matt. Um, in verse 6, I just think it's interesting. My footnote says that when it says that these people deserve it, that literally it means that it says they are worthy. And that just contrasts with what's said of God in chapter 4. You know, God is worthy of all, all this praise and honor and glory. These people are worthy in a very negative sense. They are worthy of all this. Not much of a uh, uh, note of praise. Very good. Anything else? Well, again, always be reading this as a story. 
not as separate paragraphs. So, 1612, the Euphrates is dried up. The way is prepared for the kings from the east. I'm assuming at least God's kings or kings God is using. They got an army coming. You know, God's army or the one God is using. Well, what would you expect Satan to do? Well, if you weren't expecting this, expect it. He's preparing for a defense, for a counterattack. He's not going to take the invasion sitting down. Chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. And I saw it coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he, so that he will not walk about naked, and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which is in Hebrew called Armageddon. Alright, so the devil is going to rally his troops. He's going to get his army together to fight against God's army. To do that, he has to send out the recruiters. And so out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, that would be the sea beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, that would be the earth beast, proceed what? Demons. Yes, three demons like... <laughs> Isn't that incredible? This is a caricature of the pathetic efforts of the devil. Three unclean spirits like frogs come out of their mouths to try to rally together the kings of the world to fight against God's kings. I think we're intended to see this as quite humorous. And to say, good grief. <laughs> of all, What comes out of the Lord's mouth, Jesus' mouth? Yeah, this is quite a little different, don't you think? But it has its effect. You know, these spirits of demons performing signs go out to gather the kings of the whole world. To gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And they gather them together, verse 16. So, you know, they, uh, they, they're going to get together and they're going to wipe out the Lord's army. And wipe out the Lord's people. You know, they're not going to take this sitting down. They are banding together. Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take their stand. They unite together. They are not going to put up with God and his rule anymore. They're going to fight him off. This could be a good one. God's army versus the united armies of the whole world. Wouldn't you imagine that to be quite quite an exciting uh, event? Now, notice one thing right here. In verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked, and men will not see his shame. Now, I think this is an intriguing parenthesis. 
Where have we read about uh, the shame of people's nakedness earlier in this book? The letter. The letter to Laodicea, where those Christians who were so self-satisfied but were really lukewarm needed to clothe themselves with white garments, that's 3.18, so that the shame of their nakedness would not be revealed. Now, in this passage, with the bowls of wrath, we're seeing God's punishment on the wicked who are persecuting the Christians. But somebody made the point earlier, uh, yesterday, or maybe even Friday, and I think it's true Is there any possibility of Christians being affected by God's judgment on these wicked persecutors? Well, there could be. You know, I think this is kind of a warning. You better stay awake. You better keep your clothes on. You better not walk around naked. Spiritually naked, unprepared to meet God. I mean, God's intention is absolutely to come down and destroy the wicked who are persecuting his people. But what if some of his people are naked? They may be killed in the fallout of this as well. You know, God is not beyond judging his people if he has to. And so I think this is just a little warning. You better be sure you're on the right side. When this showdown comes. And it'll come. And where will this critical battle take place? Armageddon. Which is a bit of a challenge for us. And uh, I'm in the process of changing my mind. So I'll uh, (laughs) tell you what I believe now, not what I used to believe. Armageddon means the Mount of Megiddo. Now, I don't know if you know much about the topography of the land of Canaan. I've not been there. I've just heard. But apparently, as you would imagine, along the Mediterranean Sea, there's a coastal plain. Have you ever noticed the map of of Israel? It goes and kind of juts like that. Well, that little jut right there is Mount Carmel that comes up out of the sea. Now, the easiest way to go north and south through that territory is to go up the coastal highway, the way of the sea, right along the coast. But when you get to Mount Carmel, you can't really do that, because it's a mountain coming out of the sea. So they would go to the right of Mount Carmel, through the valley there, where Megiddo was. So Megiddo is that town on the right-hand side of Mount Carmel as they pass between Mount Carmel and the hill country. And I used to explain this by saying that the battle would take place at Megiddo. But it's really not what it says. Har means mount, or mountain. So this is saying, it's they're gathering together in the place called Mount Megiddo. Well, what's Mount Megiddo? Well, I assume that is Mount Carmel, the mountain right beside Megiddo. And I'm coming to think that it would be better to see this battle as occurring on Mount Carmel, not in the valley where Megiddo is, since it says Mount Megiddo, and Megiddo itself is a valley. 
And I think that makes more sense. Because do you remember any uh, important event that took place on Mount Carmel? What was that? Yeah, you remember that in 1 Kings 18? That was the, the climactic showdown between God and Baal. Which God was God enough to bring fire down out of heaven and consume the sacrifice? And that was an absolute smashing victory for the Lord. That was amazing. One prophet versus 450 or 850, depending on how you read that. Either way, pretty pretty enormous odds. And, uh, you know, God did just a, a magnificent job, consumed the sacrifice and the water in the trench and the stones and the dust around it in the whole nine yards. He showed he was the true God. So I think that's probably where the battle is. On, on Mount Carmel, a great place for a showdown between the Lord and his enemies. But the build-up here would just make you, if you were seeing this in a movie, oh man, this is coming down to it. You're imagining the attacks, the counterattacks. You're imagining the strategy, you know, the blood, the guts, whatever. It's going to be great. I'm going to go ahead and, uh, before I give you a chance to comment, I'm going to go ahead and kind of tell you where this is going. So you're on the edge of your seat. You know, they're gathering the kings of the world, whole world, the end of 14, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 16, they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It's done. Where's the battle? Where's the battle? <laughs> it's over. We got robbed. <laughs> what happened? There is no battle. There is no battle. Why is there no battle? He's fighting against God. When God decides to say the word, it's done. There's no battle. There's no attack and counterattack. There's no anything. It's over. God won. You know, I mean, we just have no clue as to the greatness of the power of God. The moment he says it's over, that's it. They're gone. It's just, it's kind of a letdown. <laughs> But it's the way it is. All right, now I'll pause, and you can make comments or ask questions. If you were to buy a movie and it ended like that... <laughs> they don't want their money back. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. But thank God we've got a God like this. The thing is, we don't really think about this when we face temptation. That's exactly right. Yeah, we need... We need more admiration of the power of God. You know, who do we think we are when we shake our fist in the face of a God like this? You know, it's just, wow. I mean, these, these idiots that run around blaspheming God and, and acting like they know as much as He does. Wow. You know, you remember Psalm 2. When, when, the, when the kings of the earth banded together, we aren't going to put up with God's rule anymore. We're going to throw away his cords. We're going to cast away his feathers from us. What was the Lord's reaction? Yeah. Didn't even bother to get out of his throne. He sits there and laughs. This is ridiculous. It's pathetic. 
Can you imagine, you know, a, uh, a colony of ants deciding they were going to kick men off the planet and they were going to run it themselves? It isn't going to work. How foolish for them to think so. Other comments? You see what we miss when we don't study Revelation? <laughs> you know, it's really, this is exciting stuff to me. And just and, and not that difficult. I mean, we're seeing stuff, we're just looking at what it's saying. There's, I'm sure there's a lot more complicated questions that I don't even know. But as far as just getting the gist of this, it's not that difficult. And it's exciting. It's amazing. Alright, uh, would somebody read then 17 to 21? seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there were great earth, was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and the great Babylon was remembered before God to give up to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, every hailstone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Alright, so the seventh bowl, it's over, God wins, and you see these judgment symbols. Now, we haven't really mentioned this that strongly yet, but this is a climax of a series of passages. Look with me for a moment at 4-5. In 4-5, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. That's 4-5. Now look at 8-5. The angel takes the censer, fills it with fire, throws it to the earth, and there follow peals of thunders, and sounds, and flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now look at 11.19. The temple of God which is in heaven was opened, the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, there were flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Now, in 16.18, there's flash of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, the worst earthquake there's ever been. And, verse 21, huge hailstones, about a hundred pounds each. So, this, these judgment figures intensify through the book. And you see more and more strikingly presented the awesome wrath of God. Can you imagine a hundred pound hailstone? That wouldn't give you a headache. Wow. And yet still, what's man's response? Curse God. Because the plague's so bad. Wow, men's logic is really warped. You know, uh, crying uncle would be a lot smarter. <laughs> wow. You know, but man is just determined to defy God. That tells me also, we're really not here looking primarily at the final judgment. There's no opportunity curse God when Jesus returns and is over. Uh, though the final judgment has many parallels to this. 
And I think this is the judgment of the first century, specifically, of those who are persecuting those Christians. And then paralleled over and over again as God brings those down to defeat who persecute Christians and who stand in opposition to his will. And that, of course, will culminate, ultimately, God will gain the final victory over them as well. But I think in the context of the book, this is talking about is punishing those who are persecuting the Christians in the first century. So, this is the seventh bowl of wrath. Comments and questions? I think it's ironic. So many times we'll sit there when we're doing an Old Testament survey and say, oh, those foolish children of Israel, they go through those cycles of rebellion and then finally they come to their senses. But they come to their senses, which is the total contrast to what we're seeing here. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's ridiculous here when nothing seems to wake these guys up. And, uh, you know, what do you do with that? It's a good lesson for us, too. I mean, wow. We need to be sure we keep sensitive to the Lord and to His Word. And not harden our heart like these guys did. David? Also in verse 17, when he says, It is done similar to Jesus on the cross. Good point. Particularly if He's taking on Himself the wrath that we deserve. Mm -hmm. Other thoughts? Okay. Well, you know, in one sense, it seems like we could stop right here. I mean, this is kind of the end of the book. But it's not the end of the book because you just don't want to end a good story without savoring it as much as possible. So, the rest of this book, we're going to zero in on the dragon and various allies, and we're going to see specifically how they fell, and what happened to them. You know, we're going to, we're going to drag this out so that we can really feel the victory and defeat more strongly. So, we're, we're actually going to start with the, the fall of Babylon, then the fall of the two beasts, then the fall of the dragon, and then the victory of the Christians. Except, we've got a problem with Babylon. We really haven't been formally introduced. She's been mentioned a couple of times, but we don't. We haven't really got to know her. So, he's going to take chapter 17, and he's going to present Babylon to us. So then in chapter 18, we can read a blow-by-blow -blow description of her fall. So that's where we are at this point. We've kind of come to an end, but we're going to draw it out by backing off, and zeroing in on each of the devil's allies and how the fall affected them. That make sense? Alright, so chapter 17, would somebody like to read 1 to 6? Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, um, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. 
So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her head, or on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled and with great amazement. Okay. So, he is going to sh- show uh, the judgment of this great harlot. Now, actually, who is the one who is going to show that to John? One of the seven bowl angels, which tells me that the judgment of this harlot occurs simultaneously with the pouring out of these bowls of wrath. That kind of gives us a timing figure with that. And so he's, he's actually showing us the judgment of the great harlot, but first he shows us the great harlot. She's the one that the kings have been immoral with. She's the one that uh, has made the earth dwellers drunk with the wine of her immorality. She's a bad influence on the nation. She sits on many waters, which refers, verse 15, to the various peoples and nations. And, And she corrupts them. She represents worldliness. She represents immoral immorality, greed, self-indulgent pleasure, idolatry, and all of that. So, John actually sees this woman. She's sitting on the beast, that is, on the sea beast. And what does she look like? She's dressed. Well might not have been the uh, adjective I would have used. How is she dressed? Like a queen. Yeah, like a queen, ornately. What would this, 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 this that she's wearing would, would ha- have the tendency to do what? What's she trying to do wearing all this? Yeah, it's attracting. It's trying to draw attention. It's kind of, um, oh, I don't know, impressive, maybe even seductive. You know, purple and scarlet. Those were, were expensive colors. You know, or kingly, or royal colors. You know, gold, precious stones, pearls. You know, she, she's a, you know, I don't know, she's very impressive. Um, you, you might contrast what she's wearing. You can look at that carefully. With what God's woman was wearing back in chapter 12 and verse 1. She was clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, the crown of 12 stars. I mean, she was very impressive too, but it was a more natural impressiveness. This uh, harlot is more artificially impressive. She's, she's, she's uh, you know, fixing herself up with all this stuff she has. Um, almost reminds you, I mean... I don't know, a lot of women, even that we would see kind of like that, that, you know, I mean, they're they're pretty in a way, but they're pretty is very put on. It's uh, not very natural. You know, it's all, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, cosmetics, all kinds of, you know, jewelry, all kinds of elaborate clothes that are, you know, do what? Silicon. Silicon, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, just, just kind of... Uh, 
you know, I don't know. Doesn't seem very pure. And I think that really fits her. And she's got this cup in her hand. A gold cup full of the abominations and the unclean things of her immorality. And she's got a name on her forehead. And the names on your forehead describe the true character of people. You can check that out through the book. But her name is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. She is really quite an ugly woman underneath all those cosmetics and accessories. She's a wicked woman. And she's drunk. And what's she drunk on? The blood of the saints. She's a persecuting woman, even if she is a harlot that's seductive. Now, in one sense, I really want us to remember this idea that the devil uses three different instruments to try to get Christians away from him. Persecution, false teaching, and worldliness. This is the worldliness. You know, he tries to intimidate with the persecution. He tries to deceive with the false religion. And he tries to seduce with the worldliness. You know, the prosperity, the immoral sex, the substance abuse, the idolatry, all that kind of stuff kind of all rolled into the seductiveness of the world. And all three of those things, whether it's persecution, false religion, or worldliness, though all three, have, they have the potential to drag a Christian away from God and allow the devil to claim him again. Comments and questions? Okay. Well, this is one of the more challenging sections now because this is very much a section where he interprets the symbols. He takes a bunch of symbols and he says what they mean. It might have been easier if he hadn't. <laughs> so let's go ahead and read it all and we'll see if we can at least come to some understanding of some of these. 7 to 18. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world, will wonder when they, when they see the beast, that he, was, that he was and is not, and will come. Here is the mind which was wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on, on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was not, which, which was and is not, is himself also an ape, and is one of the seven, and he goes down and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but they receive authority as kings when the beast, with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose. And they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the land. 
and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and those who are with him are are the called and the chosen and faithful. And he said to me, The waters which you saw saw where the harlot where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their heart to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, and by giving their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kingdom. All right. Now, notice verse 3. The woman was sitting on the sea beast, the one that has seven heads and ten horns. So, this is kind of like a, you know, I don't know what would the word be, not really index, sort of a, um, I don't know, there's a word, but I forget what it is, but kind of a guide to interpreting these symbols. He says in verse 7, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. So in verse 8, he interprets the beast. In verse 9 to 11, the seven heads. In verse 12 to 17, the ten horns. And verse 18, the woman herself. So this is just going through point by point and explaining the meaning of each of those symbols. We haven't had anything like this since chapter 1, verse 20, probably, where he said the stars are this and the lampstands are that. Uh, So this is kind of like that, only in more detail. But it is really a bit complex. So I will suggest some things. I won't be able to answer all the questions that I have about them, let alone yours. But we'll uh, see what we can do. In verse 8, the beast that you saw. This almost sounds like double talk. You really have to listen to this. The beast that you saw was, is not, is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. You see it again in the end of the verse. The beast that he was, is not, and will come. See it again in 11. The beast which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Now, it looks to me like the idea is the beast here really represents the persecution. The persecution was Antipas was martyred. John was exiled to Patmos. The beast is not. I take it that at the very time John wrote, there was a lull in the persecution. But there's going to be the return of the beast. (laughs) The beast will come. And then go to destruction. The beast is not the final word. He's coming back. The persecution's returning. Remember, some more have to be added to the souls underneath the altar. And then God will judge or avenge their blood. So I take it, some have been persecuted. The beast is kind of dormant at the moment. It's coming back to persecute again, but then to go down the tubes. Now Jesus, you know, he was, then he died. Then he came back, but he came back to live forever, not to go to destruction. So the the beast sort of imitates the first steps of Jesus' career, and then goes the whole different direction. So I take it that the beast, this is saying about the beast, that, you know, the persecution's coming back, but then it'll be gone. 
Questions and comments through verse 8. Okay, good. The seven heads represent two things. Represent the seven mountains on which the woman sits. And seven kings. Alright, now, what to do with this is difficult. One way, one thing we need to keep in mind is the symbolic number seven. Seven mountains would be like complete power. Seven kings would be like complete rulership. But it may be that we're intended to see something more specific from that too. Let me throw out a couple things. I, I don't really, this, I'm, I'm not absolutely sure he's got a reference to this, but I think it's worth mentioning. The city of Rome was very widely known in that era to be the city that was built on seven hills. There's a number of Roman writers who said that, contemporaneous with what John wrote. So it's a little hard in this book not to imagine he's got some reference to that. Even though it still may be the idea of complete power. I suspect there's a secondary reference to Rome was actually built on seven hills. The seven kings are a little more problematic. You've got the five of fallen, one is, the other's not yet come. When he comes, he must remain a little while. And then you've got the beast, which wasn't his not as an eighth, and he's one of the seven, he goes to destruction. I would really like to make that symbolic. And I suspect that at least is a consideration. The thing that's hard about the symbolic view of this is the five have fallen, one is, another's going to come for a little while. That doesn't seem so symbolic. You know, when you divide the seven up to five plus one plus one, it almost seems like he's actually talking about literal kings. When he's talking about literal, literal kings, though, you have all kinds of problems. Trying to figure out what king to start with, what kings to count, and all that. I know an interpretation of this that makes some sense, that makes into the literal kings. But I'm just not confident of that approach. He's not sure what to do with this. Um, I do think the point ultimately is whether it's kings or beasts, they go to destruction. Whoever's here, however many more are coming, the end is destruction. You know, evil sometimes comes back, but it still goes to destruction. So I think that's the biggest point for us. And... I'm tempted to leave it at that. I'm not particularly inclined in this study to start, uh, you know, speculating on which king's which and so forth. I've done that before and I can still do it, but I'm just not sure that's all that profitable. And I'm not sure we can have very much confidence in that approach, even though that may be what he means by the five plus one plus one kind of an idea. I don't know. What do you think? I think this is one of those passages where the people that he was writing who knew what he was talking about a lot better than we ever were. Probably so. And it, it meant something to them. It still means something to us, but we don't have to worry about the specifics. But right. Just, just as Paul would write, you know, tell these people to get along with each other. They knew what the problem was that he was writing to. They knew why they should get along. Well, we know people should get along. We don't need to know what the specific problem was. Yeah, that's an excellent point. That's exactly right. And so some of the things that are more specifically applicable to their situation aren't as critical that we know the details about. 
Other thoughts? Just, just yeah. one other. I, I think if you do say, you know, the, the, the seven heads or the seven mountains and you take that literal, then that almost kind of makes you have to take the next verse literal, I would think. I think uh, that's fair. You know. Yeah, I think that's but, fair. And I think that very well, well may be the case. But it, that doesn't mean that it is literal. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Uh, I think, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's the debatable issue. Uh, the hard thing is the 511. I'm not sure what to do with that symbolically. So, you can think about all that. You've got the ten horns. And they're a little complicated too. But look at what he says about them. The ten horns in verse 12 are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. But they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Now it looks to me like these may be subordinate rulers. They receive authority as kings with the beast. They're not maybe equal to the beast, but they join forces with the beast. They have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. So to me these are... uh, lesser rulers that that join with the beast and they join with the beast in verse 14 to wage war against the lamb. It's what you always see. The world can fight and hate each other, but when when the Lord comes along, they unite together to fight against God. You saw that in Herod and Pilate. You know, or in the Herodians and the Pharisees in Mark 3. You know, so to me, these ten kings are joining together against the Lord, together with the beast, yes. I'll just think about the last chapter. Could these ten kings be the kings that the three um, demon frogs went out and tried to get on the side of the... Maybe so. Maybe so. Mm-hmm. And so they do. They wage war against the Lamb. You know, they're, they're on the war path against Christ. But the Lamb overcomes them because he's Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. When I was uh, in high school, <laughs> my high school Bible class studied Revelation for a year and a half. And uh, there were some good things and some bad things about that. But we learned this verse as the chief memory verse, as the theme of the book. I still think there's no better verse to choose as the theme of the book. This is what it's all about. They wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb overcomes them because He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. So, the Lamb wins, and we need to be with Him, and we'll win too. I mean, that is really the point of the book, it seems to me. Um, but we need to make sure we stay faithful to our calling so that we can still be with Him. Um, and he says the waters that the woman sits on, they're the people's multitudes, nations, and tongues. It's almost another definition. But then he comes back to the ten horns in verse 16. The ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now it looks to me like what happens is the beast and the horns turn against the harlot and destroy her. But God has put it in their hearts to execute his, his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. So it looks to me like you have the harlot riding on the beast. You have the harlot and the beast working together. And then suddenly the beast turns on the harlot. And you know, Jesus said, if Satan fights against Satan, he's finished. 
Well, actually, that's what happened to me. You know, evil does self-destruct, and that's one of the reasons Satan's kingdom does not endure. You know, and it's so incredible because they end up doing God's purpose. The one thing they didn't want to do is what they actually do. And so they turn and destroy the heart. God allows the wicked ones to punish the wicked ones, and they all self-destruct. And then he identifies the woman. She's the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Which I think, in specific, if we've identified, I think it's reasonable to say in the first century, the sea beast was represented by the Roman Empire, particularly from the parallels with Daniel 7. The earth beast then would be the religion of the worship of the emperor. And so Babylon would be represented by Rome, the city of Rome, in the first century. But God, but the devil always has his Babylon, his worldliness, that seduces and entices the Christians. So we see historically some things, but we also see that, you know, this conflict and Satan's operation is not limited in the first century. He functions today as well. Alright, that's a lot to say. Comments or questions about all of that? The, the only question I, I have, because I think all of that's, you know, that's what I believe too, but the problem that I've always had is that when it comes to this victory and it talks about you know, the ten horns horns are going to turn on the beast and all of that, you know, you think, well, yeah, that's what happened to Rome. Right? Well, that's what happened to the Roman Empire. But that didn't happen until 300 years after this. And, you know, it says in here, all these things are going to shortly come to pass. So how do you, how do you kind of look at that? That's a very good question. I think primarily the book is not talking about the destruction of the Roman Empire, not primarily. I think it's primarily talking about the ending of the specific persecution of those churches shortly after John wrote. I do think it's possible that when God ended that specific persecution, that that was sort of a foreshadowing of the ultimate demise of the Roman Empire itself. I think that could be. But I suspect the greater function is just the ending of that persecution. Now, one problem with that is that certainly further persecutions arose very shortly after the first century and continued for a couple more centuries. That's an issue with my view of that. But I still see this as more likely to be specifically referring to something happening right then to those churches and not something happening 400 years later, by which time there weren't much faithful left among the brethren anyway. Um, Is there any external evidence... You know, th- there were kings in all these old places. You know, we, sure. Max, we sure. about King Agrippa. Sure. Is there any external evidence that says, you know, the, the local rulers in this region where these churches were, after time, got fed up with Rome? Look, we really just don't want to do this anymore. This is causing a bunch of problems, and that caused some of the persecution to change. Is there any evidence of anything like that going on that, no, I'm not sure that's the way I see this, but but I, I mean, obviously, you know, if you want to say Rome was defeated in part by, you know, some of the territories that had conquered rising up against her and turning on her, yeah, we can say that. 
you know, connecting that with the persecution, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The, the, some of those questions are really hard for me. I mean, trying to deter, trying to understand historically exactly what we're saying. One thing we might think about is this: we are looking at God's perspective on these things. This is how God sees it, not necessarily how we would see it historically, especially two thousand years later with whatever information we've got. That that also makes me not want to be too tied in with the history. I don't know all about the history. I don't, nobody knows all about that. You know, I'm more interested in seeing God's perspective on what he sees going on. I'm not even sure, I'm not really sure, that these ten horns and the beast turning against the harlot is necessarily saying this is the fall of the city of Rome. I'm not sure that's what it's saying. I think it may just be saying they fight against each other. And I don't know exactly how that goes. Uh, so I'm more interested in the principles than I am in, in the historical details because I'm not sure we know all the history. I'm not sure we know how this fits in with exact history. And I think the lessons for us are timeless anyway. So that's kind of where I'm at is I think there's some things we can probably say, but I'd rather not say them too loudly. <laughs> the same after Jason turns off. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean there are, there are certainly those who are good students of this who would make a lot more specific things uh, historically out of this. Maybe they know the history better, and maybe they can correlate it better, and maybe they're right. I'm not against that. I'm just not confident enough to go very far down that line. Thing. It's not the important part of the story for us. That's the way I feel about it. Yeah, I don't think it is. And I mean, I look at the Old Testament prophets. And, you know, their vision was more the vision of God about things that were going to happen. Not, in many cases, not so much something that matches exactly up with the way historians would view it. One exception would be the book of Daniel. But outside of that, it's more perspective on how God sees things, not so much intended as something to just, you know, open your history book right along with this and read right along. I just think, I think God's not trying to do it that way. I think God's trying to say, here's how I look at this. You know, here's what this is really saying. It's not that God can't do that. And Daniel, especially Daniel 11, is an incredibly, remarkably detailed you know, specific account of some historical events that are amazing. Uh, and God can do that. It's not that like God knows everything's going to happen. It's just not what God usually chooses to do. He doesn't usually need to give us a whole lot of just specific, almost oracular things. You know, I'm predicting that in the next 10 years it'll be this, and 20 years it'll be that. God's giving us much more principles and a vision uh, that helps us He's not mostly trying to be some kind of a soothsayer saying, here's what will happen here and here and here. That's the way I see those things. This, this woman is a harlot, and that, I mean, throughout the Old Testament, that image is used for primarily people who should have been God's people, but it turned away from them. Um, Well, sometimes. We're more familiar with it in that because the Old Testament was more about uh, Israel. But it's also used in several passages for um, for other nations 
that were harlots. For example, uh, I'm thinking about Nahum 3.4, which is talking about the city of Nineveh. And she's, uh, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries. He's talking about the city of Nineveh. And there are some others as well. So harlot was not exclusively used of Israel. It was used of other pagan cities and so forth. They were just, they were wicked, um, unfaithful, um, sexually immoral, whatever. I I think any people that would worship something other than God is a harlot. I mean, we're the bride of Christ. If we don't worship Christ, what does that make us? That makes us a harlot. And I think that's the way the word is always used. Whether Because Israel, when they would sin, they would go after other gods and play the harlot. And so, uh, that's the way I see it. Good question. I'm trying to figure out the association between this woman and the beast, which we sort of thought was representative. I think she's riding on the beast. I'm wondering if there's some sense in which this is a someone who should have been God's people and is not. I think not. Yeah, I think not. I think the great city that ruled over the kings of the earth, if we want to make it anything, is the city of Rome. Um, you know, one of the things that we do. Let me see if I can uh, say this concisely. Um, one of the major views that brethren have adopted and are more and more about the book and those who do usually are pretty vehement about this, they make the, the harlot Babylon into the city of Jerusalem. Now, one of, their, one of the approaches that they use, and I want to show you what they say and what I think is the problem with it. They will say, all right, look at this, look at Babylon. It says this about her. Well, it says that about Jerusalem over here. It says this about her. Well, it says the same thing about Jerusalem over here. It says this about her. Well, it says the same thing about Jerusalem over here. Therefore... This harlot Babylon must be Jerusalem. Well, here's the flaw with that. Like the harlot question. Is Jerusalem a harlot in some passages? Well, absolutely. But are other cities harlots in some passages? Yes, they are. So the fact that it matches Jerusalem, if it matches other cities, kind of weakens the argument that makes it have to be Jerusalem. I think that's true with almost all of the things that are used. There's no control. It's just like we can match other passages that, that use that for Jerusalem, but all those same figures are used for various cities and nations. To me, that almost completely de- uh, destroys any, any force in that argument. And I think that, that from the passage themselves, this is clearly not Jerusalem. This is the city that's ruling over the kings of the earth. You can make it just the world city, or you can make it the city of Rome, but Jerusalem wasn't ruling over the kings of the earth. And when you come to chapter 18, all the trading and expensive stuff that was done was clearly not Jerusalem. The shipping industry was not mourning the passing of Jerusalem. (laughs) Jerusalem was not like that. Rome would have been, or make it even not specifically Rome, but the city that represents the world if you want to. But I think Jerusalem is really not a good choice for that, in my view. You would have more of a parallel, let's say, from the principles if you look at both Proverbs where it compares the adulterous woman to wisdom. Good point. Because the adulterous woman and also other Old Testament passages, the, the harlot is uh, or the ones that are committing harlotry are those that go after other gods, little g, mm-hmm. rather than the true God, 
thinking that that's where their physical blessings come from, mm-hmm. as opposed to the true wisdom from God, who really loves them and cares for them. Sure. So it would represent almost worldly wisdom. Anything else? All right, let's at least take a break.